Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey, and this week Steph's on vacation, so I was instead joined by a special guest, Gary Bernhardt. I've personally been following Gary's work for over a decade, and if you've enjoyed anything I've shared here on Bike Shed or on Upcase, there's a very good chance it was informed by Gary's work. Uh, to quickly sum up some of his contributions, Gary runs Destroy All Software Screencasts, which has videos on testing, workflow, architecture, and more general software practices. In this episode, I talk with Gary about a few of my personal favorites if you're interested in figuring out where to start or try them out. Currently, Gary is building Execute Program, an interactive platform for learning tools like TypeScript, regular expressions, SQL. And in the episode, we talk both about the platform and Gary's ideas about learning in general, but also the architecture and approach Gary's using to build it. Gary was the organizer of Deconstruct Conf, a unique single-track conference that ran for the past three years, but unfortunately didn't happen this year due to COVID. But the full collection of talk videos is still available, and it's really full of some absolute gems. Gary's also a prolific conference speaker himself, and again in the episode I highlight and dig into a few of my favorite of his talks. And while it's arguable if it's his most significant contribution to the collective knowledge, but Gary's also known for his lightning talk called WAT, where he highlights some of the humorous inconsistencies in the programming languages that we love. In this conversation, Gary and I discussed his experience with TypeScript and shift from working mostly in Ruby to a system built in Node and React, his ideas around functional programming and purity and where they do and don't fit, and the value of deeply knowing the tools that we use to build our software, and much, much more. I personally have benefited so much from Gary's work over the years, and it was such a pleasure to get to sit down with him and see what he's thinking about these days. All the better that we now get to share that conversation with all of you. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Gary Bernhardt. Thanks so much for joining me today, Gary. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So for a long time, your work has been some of the more formative for me personally. I know many of the other folks at ThoughtBot. And so first and foremost, I just wanted to thank you for the many years and the variety of fantastic resources that you put out into the world. Yeah, um, it's always amazing to hear that, which, you know, when you make something that's purely digital and online, you don't hear that until years later sometimes. So <laughs> yeah, it's a long game. Thank you. Yes, yeah, it's a very long, uh, long game. Yeah, well, I have a, a number of topics that I would love to dig into today. So uh, starting with the first one, one of the topics that you're particularly well known for is testing and more specifically TDD. But most of what I've seen of your work in that is in dynamic languages like Ruby and Python. More recently, though, you seem to be spending a lot of time in TypeScript. So now you have the additional tool of a strong type system. And so I'm wondering, obviously, that's not an either or situation. But I'm wondering what your current overall approach looks like when it comes to building trust in your system, getting feedback as you're working, refactoring, etc. What sort of role do each of types and tests play? Where do they complement each other? Where do you choose one versus the other? Sort of what does that look like? Well, the first thing is that the type system is always on. So we don't have like files where it's off. Because we're going to get into TypeScript at some point, I imagine. It is possible to turn off the type system, but we don't do that. So everything is TypeScript. So it's always type-checked, and we don't use any or whatever, anything like that, often. I wish I had written down the test-to-code ratio for you, but it is much lower than it would be in, in a dynamic language. So we have tests that cover all the database code, algorithmically complex things, so things like React reducers or modules that perform heavy computations around figuring out what lesson to show you next and execute program, all that kind of stuff is tested. But we don't test React components at all currently, not directly. They are in, indirectly tested through some Cypress end-to-end -end tests. And server-side API handlers are generally not tested directly either. So they just kind of implicitly get tested. The important ones get tested through Cypress. Some of them, we just rely on the type system to keep everyone honest. So way, way less testing overall. Nothing like the kind of three-to-one ratio you would see in a well-tested Ruby app. 
Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And that maps to my personal experience where I've, I've found a type system that I can really trust, that I can start to offload a lot of the concerns that I used to have to put into the, the tests. But I'm interested somewhat more specifically, TDD was, again, one of the facets of the work that mm-hmm. you did. And so TDD is not just about the test, but it's about the the feedback that we're getting as we're developing the software. And so I'm sort of interested what your thinking is around the workflow of working with types and even type-driven development is a thing that I've heard, not so much in the TypeScript community, but a little bit more in other communities, but that same sort of iterative feedback-driven flow. Have you found that and enjoyed that in the type system world of TypeScript? To some extent. So I don't have significant experience with the types of languages where the term type-driven development tends to get used. So I've never written a system in Haskell or Scala, or I imagine those are probably the two biggest ones where that term's used. There are parts of the system where I do feel that type-drivenness. And a lot of times for me, it is about, if I'm making a change and I start it at the sort of UI layer with React, that UI layer needs some data from the back end, right? I might shim it when I'm doing the, the visual layout, but then I remove that shim and I have to actually pull it in. And the type system errors there forces me to introduce an, uh, an endpoint definition. That endpoint definition maybe forces me to write a backend handler for that endpoint. The backend handler maybe forces me to add a database column because it's erroring because it's trying to access data that doesn't exist. And it kind of feels like TDD a little bit, but the fact that you're not writing tests makes it feel very different. You're just writing these little annotations occasionally, you know, and a lot of them are automatic because it infers the types. It, with respect to TDD in particular, I'll still do it on this. one of the things I mentioned a minute ago, like very algorithmic kinds of code, you know, like we have this thing right now that actually is probably going to be removed, but it shows you uh, your review performance over time, reviewing the things you've learned in XQ program. And it's a pretty heavy computation on the back end to compute that kind of plot that we draw. And so I TDD'd that because it's like, you know, lots of edge cases, uh, it's numerical in nature. So there's a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong around dividing by zero or just silly things like that, that TDD is really good at eliminating. Whereas the type system is, those are totally opaque to the type system. You know, the type system doesn't know if you divide by zero or not. (laughs) Well, not the TypeScript type system, at least. Right. Yeah. You'd have to go to like, probably, I'm sure Idris, you could express that, but um, good, good luck writing uh, XQ program in Idris. <laughs> yes. Or much else. But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Actually, you just put out a video. I think this was yesterday as we're mm-hmm. recording this. This is on YouTube now. So a, a slightly different channel and a slightly different format than some of the other screencasts that you've done, but it was called end-to-end TypeScript database backend API and front end. And it sort of walks through the workflow that you've built up, uh, which was mm-hmm. really interesting to watch and to see how basically what you were just describing of where you introduce a change at one layer and how it sort of just pushes through each of the other layers and you don't have to have the cognitive overhead of thinking of all of those places because the type system is just going to tell you that. Yeah, absolute minimum, the type system is going to tell you where to go next, you know, and that's, it sounds like kind of a trivial thing until you're working in a project with thousands of files and you don't want to have to, you know, keep them all in your head. And if you trust the type system, then you don't have to. <laughs> if you trust the type, that is an interesting um, aside that you said there of if you trust the type <laughs> system, because my experience yeah. with TypeScript has been really interesting in that it is, frankly, a marvel of engineering that they were able to do what they did and build it on top of JavaScript and sort of meet JavaScript where it is, but also build this strong, expressive type system. But they also needed to meet JavaScript where it is, which is a very flexible language with a lot of existing code. And so I personally run into a lot of cases where I wish TypeScript had a little bit more strictness even. It definitely has the setting for strict all the way up. But I'm like, no, no, no. I want an Mm. option significantly more extreme than that. Please don't ever tell me that an array is going to give me back definitely the thing when it may not give me the thing when I may get null. Yes, yes. 
Oh my God, that's one of the worst parts. <laughs> so for those who don't know TypeScript well, if you have an array of numbers and it's called numbers, let's say, and you say numbers open bracket four, the type of that is going to be a number if there's a number in slot four. But if the array is of a length three or four and there is no fourth slot, then you're going to get undefined, but that's not in the type. And I totally wish for like stricter mode, like maybe it can be like double dash worn where like you use it more than once for greater effect. <laughs> like, double, double dash, dash very strict, strict, yeah. dash strict. <laughs> but how much you trust the type system, it's a very important part of actually knowing a static language well. I mean, if you're in Haskell, let's say, Haskell is not going to let you just sidestep the type system accidentally, right? But TypeScript, you do not have to try very hard to accidentally do the wrong thing. Like you mentioned with, you know, undefined coming out of arrays or oh, there are so many other examples, but none are coming to mind. Well, external type definitions for existing JavaScript libraries, right? A lot of times the authors of those libraries just like rub some any on the problem. And now like, but, which basically turns the type system off, right? Yeah. So... But silently yeah, turns it off, yeah. Silently, Just quiets yes, it, right. uh, pushes it into the corner. Yeah. You can get a little bit of that back with uh, ESLint TypeScript. You can tell it to, to yell at you if you accidentally have an any um, that wasn't explicitly declared. But I totally agree with what you said about TypeScript is kind of a, a, a miracle of design because I, I never would have guessed that it was even possible to meet JavaScript where it is and yet still get as much static type checking as, as it does. But the other side of that is it actually makes TypeScript a harder static language than a lot of others in this certain way, which is you have to know all this weird stuff about like an array of numbers. Sometimes it just gives you the, it claims it's a number, but really it's an undefined. And, and so you learn all these weird sort of like patterns that are just to work around the things TypeScript did to work around the things JavaScript did. <laughs> which are our workarounds for the things that Microsoft enshrined as features many years ago. But uh, here we are working today. Uh, I guess the answer is somewhat obvious based on the fact that you're building a business on top of TypeScript so deeply. But I find it interesting looking at something like a TypeScript. And I think it can easily fall into the uncanny valley or you know, be just on the wrong side of useful. But I'm guessing that you would say mm. that TypeScript, even with the some of the limitations or the the ways that it needs to reduce the strictness that it's actually able to apply, that it's definitely still worthwhile and on the very good side of useful. Certainly for me, I have no misgivings about whether it's a good choice for me as a developer. I do worry about, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time working in dynamic languages. We learned all the weird pitfalls of them and how to work around them, right? How do you avoid everything being nil all the time <laughs> in Ruby? It takes a long time. And if you have all of that built up, then you already know how to work around the JavaScript weirdness, which is mostly analogous to that. You know, it's kind of the same in any dynamic language, more or less. And so layering on that extra layer of now I have to learn how to work around the TypeScript safety problems is not that difficult. But what I what I worry about is people who are one or two years into their career don't have this massive amount of scar tissue, right? Like, like Ben Burned. I worry about them trying to learn all this stuff at once. And certainly... If I could like magically change the language that we were working in, it would, I would much rather have something like Reason or, or Elm or something that was designed from the beginning to, to actually work this way, as opposed to being layer after layer of working around the previous layer. But can't do that. So the best I can do is try to make a thing that helps those people learn the tools we have. And <laughs> yeah, 
hopefully they do okay. You definitely can't do that broadly, but I am intrigued, uh, specifically mentioning Elm and Reason. Were those considerations when you were looking at the language to build execute program in? Or I'm guessing largely it was due to wanting to have a common language across the server and the client, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, were they considerations? Particularly Elm is one that I've, I've absolutely loved, and the type system there is so much more cohesive because, again, yeah. it was built from first principles, but there are definitely trade-offs. So I'm interested in your thoughts around that. Yeah, those were considerations. Also, Flow, although TypeScript and Flow are similar enough that I basically chose TypeScript for popularity reasons, honestly, you know, more tooling available. So, yeah, Elm in particular for me was like kind of the number two runner-up. And honestly, a large part of that is I have so much faith in Evan Chaplicki as a language designer and a sort of community manager, for lack of a, of a better term. He seems to think very carefully about everything he does. And that's like a really, you know, that's what you want, right? And someone who's, who's managing this tremendously complex system. The reasons that I didn't use it are, number one, as you mentioned, backend, right? So certainly not going to try to be the first large commercial backend in Elm, <laughs> at least as far as I know there aren't any. So that was a big one. Also, you know, the realities of the product I was building is that more people want to learn TypeScript in Elm just due to popularity. So I need to have as much TypeScript experience as possible. And that doesn't apply to most products, obviously, but it was a factor here that should be acknowledged. But I certainly wouldn't dissuade anyone from trying Elm. I think it's very thoughtfully designed. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And interesting, the sort of like self-hosting nature of Execute Program, where it makes sense to write Execute Program in TypeScript because you're going to talk about TypeScript a good amount. It is a very weirdly meta project. I mean, we ship... It's written in TypeScript, but we also ship the TypeScript compiler to the browser because it, we run all the code examples in the browser. Yo, dog. Your browser also runs Babel uh, mm. when you're using Execute Program. What could go wrong? <laughs> Probably nothing. I think it's fine. Uh, you yeah, should also actually, try some so async far. stuff at some point on the platform. I imagine that'll be easy to manage and not have any race conditions. Yeah, or... yeah. yeah I certainly won't spend six months uh, rebuilding that course because the first one wasn't good enough. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Well, on a vaguely similar note, and this is possibly a question, possibly more of a commiseration, but I personally am someone who is just hopelessly devoted to Vim. And my experience working with TypeScript and Vim has been okay, and it's getting better, but it's definitely leaving some things to be desired. I'm wondering, where are you at on that experience? I, I assume you're still working in Vim. The video that I saw yesterday was, I believe, in Vim. So that speaks yep. to that. But what's your experience been like there? Yeah, still only use Vim, uh, only in the terminal. Yeah, as you saw in the video, I think I restarted the TypeScript language server like three or four times because it got confused. Also, as soon as I started using all those TypeScript plugins, Vim, for the first time ever, would just like get super broken in ways that I don't understand at all. Like the terminal state seems to go wrong sometimes. And I haven't seen it actually properly crash, but like things just seem to go wrong in, in ways that are just totally incomprehensible to me. And, you know, you're running this 
text editor that was designed to be a single synchronous process, and now you're bolting on this giant external language server, actually two of them. I don't know if you use um, Skuyomi in addition to... I've never heard it pronounced. Skuyomi. Uh, is yeah, that the TS dash, that one? Yeah, T-S-U-Q-U, Skuyomi. Yeah, I don't know if I'm saying that right. I know enough Japanese phonetics to say it extra wrong, probably, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it does, does like jump to definition and stuff. But all these kinds of tools, every single one of them forks a TypeScript language server, and then that language server has its own internal state, gets confused sometimes. The boundary between the two might get confused in other ways because maybe the Vim plugin isn't perfect either. I can tell from what VS Code users say that it's not a problem that's specific to Vim, but unlike lots of other IDE problems, this one doesn't go away when you use Vim. It's, it comes along for the ride because you can't avoid the tools. And if anything, I would say it's probably significantly worse because we we don't have a client that is working from first principles around that. Like VS Code and the TypeScript True. language server, my understanding is they grew up together in Microsoft and yep. they sort of have a very strong integration story. And I love the idea of the language server, but I've yet to see an example of a different editor that is able to interface as well. And I think the other language servers are starting to get there. That's actually going particularly well, but the editor story is, right. I'm, I'm still very hopeful. I'm very long on this idea, but it's rough right it's, now. It sounds great in principle, but especially because TypeScript is the first of them. And like you said, the client and server grew up together, meaning VS Code and the TypeScript language server. And this might not be true anymore, but as of about a year and a half ago, they weren't even using the language server, the normal one. There's like two protocols and they were using their own weird TypeScript protocol that predated the standard protocol but Vim doesn't do that. Vim uses the standard one, right? The Whatever the Vim plugin, I forget what it's called. Maybe just Vim TypeScript, something like that. So yeah, it's a whole, much like the JavaScript ecosystem itself, it's just like so many layers of things happening really fast and then getting baked in. And what are you going to do? I mean, not write web apps. I guess that's that's kind of the only... <laughs> I will not give up on web apps and I will not give up on Vim. So that's certainly my take and seems to be your take as well. Yeah, yeah. We have chosen the pot that we are boiling in. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, coming back to the design of Execute Program, and just to give a little bit of context in case if we haven't mentioned this yet, the structure of Execute Program, there's a node process running on the back end that's serving an API, that's a REST API there. And then on the front end, you have a React client-side app, lots of interactivity, lots of client-side state, I assume, although I'm kind of interested in what the structure there is. Um, but one of the first questions that I have is that REST API with types, and you have this whole idea of them flowing down, which again, I think is really well captured in that YouTube video that we'll link to. Did you consider uh, other alternatives, particularly GraphQL is the one that comes to mind, because that's a system that has a type system and a lot of community support now for generating types into different target languages or target runtimes. Is that something that you considered or was that just, that's too many technologies to take on here, that sort of thing? I did consider it. The thing you just mentioned is one of the reasons I didn't do it, just like so Execute Program's backend was actually originally Ruby, and I ported it to TypeScript. So it was my first backend TypeScript app. It was my first Node app, actually, that was like a real, you know, commercial production system. And so I didn't want to be introducing too many things at once. But also that was a year and a half ago where GraphQL, from where I was standing at least, it wasn't really clear whether it was going to be a thing in the long term. Like you weren't seeing as many companies that were really bought into it, and I didn't want to pitch my cart to a horse that was going to disappear. And then in code gen, whenever you say the word code gen, I'm like, that cuts my interest in half in anything, you know, because I don't, I just don't want that complexity if I can avoid it. So what I ended up doing is just, it's all just TypeScript. There's no code gen. There's none of that weird stuff. We do use IOTS, which is, which is a different kind of weird, but 
They're just TypeScript types. And I wouldn't say I regret that. Although if, if GraphQL turns out to be like the way that API communication is done in five or 10 years, and I probably will regret it. Honestly, we'll probably port to it if we get there. And it doesn't strike me that that would be that difficult to do the port. So, so for now, we're just normal TypeScript types. It does the job. It's fine. Yep, that makes sense. Moving on slightly, but still sticking to the architecture of uh, execute program. One of the ideas that uh, is particularly popular that you've you've shared in the past is the idea of the functional core imperative shell. So for anyone who's not familiar, there's a screencast on Destroy All Software. Uh, it's actually the free sample for the particular season that it's in. So we will definitely include a link to that. And I highly recommend folks check it out. But it talks about a sort of a, a foundational idea that you have around building software. And it's an amalgamation of ideas that have existed. But I think you put an interesting name and frame to it. Uh, and then similarly, there's a conference talk that you gave called Boundaries that expands upon and I think gives a, a slightly more abstract but bigger view of the the same ideas. But for anyone that's not familiar with these, and again, we'll have links to those, so highly recommend checking them out after the fact. But this is a quote from the functional core imperative shell that you say sort of towards the end, summing up the idea. I think that the ideal program contains a whole lot of immutable code and sort of functional style and then small pieces of mutable code doing imperative things, but having them be localized and separate from the data and core behavior of the system. So I don't know if it's interesting to hear those words said back to you, but um, <laughs> that idea for me was definitely very formative. And it's something that has, has really informed a lot of the code that I've written, particularly in Ruby and Rails apps, just you know, structuring data and the interfaces within the system. But I'm wondering how well that maps into the REST API and React client-side code. Do those ideas still feel true to you? Or are they, are they things that you have in mind as you're building out that system? And if so, what sort of form or shape do they take in that architecture? Certainly they, they apply. In fact, you know, just to take a React example, React reducers are exactly that. You know, a reducer is a totally stateless function. It takes in the previous state and a new event that's happening and it returns the new state. And that is a core concept in, in modern hook-based React. And we use them, of course. Now, they don't make up most of the front-end code by any means. So that, you know, the sort of ratio I was pre presenting there was probably too much for at least the technologies we use now. If you were in an Elm system, this would be very different, right? Because in Elm, it's like pure by default, right? Pure from the beginning. So it's much easier to have an almost entirely pure system. But as far as execute program, our reducers, of course, are pure. We have other kind of front-end modules that are along the same lines that are pure. And then we have a whole collection of modules on the back end that are pure. Things like, you know, I mentioned computing what lesson or review should the user see next. That's all pure. And that's probably 5 to 10% of the entire backend is just concerned with like figuring that out because it's actually very complex. And so in that case, what we do is we have database model classes that are similar to what you would see in even Rails, you know, same kind of idea, stateful, mutable. And so we pull all the data we're going to need out of the database. We throw it all into that pure module that figures out what to do next it churns, grinds it all out totally immutably, and then returns the answer that we then send back over the API, which is, you know, kind of what it would look like in Rails, too. You would have some database models, you churn on some stuff, and then you throw it into a view. So all that stuff still applies just fine. But certainly I'm not at some kind of like 95% functional ideal situation or nothing like that. It's, it's probably 80-20 in favor of imperative code. It's a magic ratio that you named right there. <laughs> I guess it depends on how you count the React components, because a lot of them are technically stateless, but I don't hesitate to like throw a use state in a previously stateless component. So I, I think of them as stateful, even if they're technically stateless. So it's a little fuzzy there. But that idea, which like you said, I, I did not come up with, I just sort of put a word on a bunch of related things from other people. 
it's extremely universal and extremely useful, especially if you haven't encountered it before. It'll structure your thought around software design in a way that, in my experience, few other things have, at least for me. Sounds like for you too, so. Yes, absolutely. I'm interested in digging in just a little bit around the structure of the client-side code that you have there, the the React. You mentioned reducers. I'm wondering if those are like use reducer from React hooks or if those are Redux style or some other mm. larger framework. And do you have much persistent client state, even if it's you know immutably managed through a reducer? I've found that client state is one of those places where things tend to run away, even though React is supposed to be mostly functional-ish and lots of hand-wavy words here. But Yeah. <laughs> when I say reducer, I just mean use reducer. So the, the built-in hook... We we don't use Redux. In fact, I believe that we use exactly two NPM modules that know about React, and that is Stripe React, which we use in one place, obviously, and um, React Router. So we don't use any kind of state management system. We don't use any anything fancy, really. There is a fair bit of state sprinkled around the system, and so far it has not collapsed under its own weight. So I know that people tend to start growing a React system. They're doing state management willy-nilly. It turns into a mess and nobody knows where any state is and it's going out of sync with other state, you know, because it's duplicated or whatever. We haven't hit that point. And it might just be that I'm so paranoid about getting there that I try to centralize state aggressively when possible. But I don't follow any of the sort of, you know, grand visions of how, how state should be organized. Like you have the single single global immutable value school of thought and then, you have the lots of little local state school of thought. I guess implicitly I'm doing the second one, but it seems like we don't have an answer here at all. Well, it also sounds like you don't have a problem. So who needs yeah, more yeah. of an answer if, if that's the space that you're at? But Right. right. I think that I'm, I'm benefiting there from the fact that the app is not so huge and complex that it runs into the nasty problems in this space. And, you know, the reason for that is that basically execute program most of the complexity exists to run the lessons and reviews. And so it's just kind of two pages where most of the complexity is. And that complexity is primarily in executing user code correctly, figuring out what happened in the user code, showing them errors and hints appropriately for what happened. But none of that requires complex client-side state management. It's actually pure in from the React app's perspective, right? It's just a function it calls and it gets a thing back. So, you know, if we were building Facebook where you've got like 10,000 pages or whatever they have, you know, separate kinds of pages, that would be a different story, which is why React is what it is. <laughs> that definitely makes sense and, and maps roughly to my experiences. Uh, moving on to another, um, this is less of a pointed idea or thing that you've said, but it's something that I've taken away from your work. So I'm interested in how you would frame it or if my interpretation of it uh, feels true to you. But one of the the sections that you have in Destroy All Software is the From Scratch series. And so in that, you have a number of videos where you build up foundational tools or workflows or things like that. So there's one where you build a test runner uh, similar to RSpec or Jest or other uh, test runners like that. You build a web framework, a compiler, a data compressor, a text editor, a shell, all of these things that are deeply foundational. I think most developers would think of as this kind of like other class of thing. But in it, mm -hmm. you very methodically and in a very simple way and very like base ideas, but you build up these tools from first principles, uh, in particular, the compiler from scratch, which again happens to be the uh, free sample from that season. So folks can take a look at that. That was something that I used actually when I was learning Scala. It was actually a perfect example sort of application to cut my teeth in Scala. And it was nice to actually have the additional layer of having a type system, but then to roughly re-implement exactly what you had done there. But what's interesting to me is I get the sense that some of your goal with those is to 
enforce the idea that we should remove the mystery from these tools, that things are sort of fundamentally knowable and that that is a good frame of mind to be in. Um, but again, because this is more of an abstract one, I'm interested in what are your thoughts and is my interpretation sort of in the space of what you were hoping to try and put across with that? Yeah, totally. That's exactly my motivation. If you don't understand the the things you're building on, you're inevitably going to misunderstand them. That's how design mistakes of the past get amplified into the future. And that's not to say that every single programmer is like sort of morally compelled to understand everything down to the NOR gate or NAND gates or whatever. But anything that feels mysterious and unknowable, if you just dig in and even just figure out the basics of how it works, just the very like high level skeleton of like, how would I solve this problem? How would I build a text editor? Which is basically what those videos are. It's going to stop feeling so scary. And then, you know, it's one more corner of the world that feels sort of accessible to you. It's something that really gets lost in the culture that we currently have or maybe always have had around around software development, which is the thing that gets the airtime is the newest version of the newest cool tool, right? Everyone wants to talk about the, the new version of, of Vue that was just released or whatever. Actually, I think there was one, so that's timely. But <laughs> And that's not to say there's anything wrong with being excited about new releases, but the fundamentals apply everywhere, whereas in five years, that new version of, of Library X isn't going to matter. And actually, I've been listening to a bunch of past episodes recently of this podcast. And one of the things I really like about it is that you often talk about like maintenance. Like I listened to the episode with Eileen, which is all about maintenance of GitHub, which is a very old and complex Rails app. And that is a tremendous service to the world because most people who are doing a podcast about software development stuff, they're going to talk about the new shiny thing. And the new shiny thing is great, but it's not the bulk of the work, you know? It's like the tip of a very large iceberg, and most of your your work time is going to be spent battling things you don't actually understand, whether it's legacy code built by your organization or layers of tooling underneath you that you just never learned because you never learned. So I feel like we're both sort of fighting that battle in, in kind of different ways to to broaden that topic base. Well, that's incredibly kind of you to say. And I hope that that's something that we're able to do here. It largely comes from our experience because often as consultants, Steph and I are not necessarily working with the hottest new thing. Uh, I tend to you know play with it on the weekends and Steph goes on her explorations as well. But so much of our work is the same old patterns repeated over and over again. But it's interesting to me that there's sort of a, a dual aspect to the From Scratch series where First and foremost, I actually came to a better understanding of a bunch of tools, which I really enjoyed. But really, uh, the core piece that kind of stuck with me was the idea that things are knowable. And just having that idea in the back of my head that these things that used to be mysterious aren't. And so that generally means that things that I might look at and think of as mysterious, I don't definitely need to understand them. But the idea that I could. And so there are so Mm -hmm. many new frameworks and tools and languages. And anytime we sort of treat them as black boxes and just have to trust what comes out of them, I feel like we end up in perhaps a less safe space in, in order to work with them. And so, uh, again, I just really appreciate that that's one of the the things that you put out there. And I cannot recommend that particular series on Destroy All Software highly enough. And again, there's the free version of it there, which we'll link to. Um, but coming back to the idea of, of knowing things deeply, because I think that's also sort of a theme in your work, and particularly Execute Program has as its tagline, learn programming tools fast, then remember them. And so really the, the emphasis being there on the second sentence, then remember them. Because I think we all get exposed to many things, but we don't necessarily retain a lot of it. And I think mm. somewhat in contrast to what your some of your your work, and particularly on the platform there, is, well, we can just Google it. We'll just look it up when we need it. Mm. And I'm interested if you can talk just a little bit about sort of your more foundational ideas. Why is it useful to deeply know SQL or Regex or TypeScript or JavaScript arrays and have that information at more immediate recall? 
the most direct answer is is speed. Not to say that the speed with which you can type code out is the most important thing in life, but there's a big difference between remembering the arguments to the reduced callback and just typing them in in literally 500 milliseconds versus spending 30 seconds to get to the docs page and find the right section and look at it. I mean, that's that kind of stuff really adds up. And it's not just in terms of how quickly you can get the code written, but the more you have to take 30-second breaks to read docs, it's it's an opportunity for you to, to lose the state that you have in your mind, right, about what you're doing. And so it effectively reduces your working memory. And working memory is like the number one thing for programming, at least the way that I do it. Like the number of things you can keep in your mind at one time, just, you know, in the short term, that's going to determine how well can you do a refactoring that spans 30 different files? You know, can you track where things are in progress and whatnot? And so anything that interrupts that is seriously detrimental. Yeah, and I think more generally, like Vim is a particular example where I think your your videos shine. And I think many folks in the Vim community would say, oh yeah, Gary Bernhardt, absolutely watch one of those videos and see what it looks like to really proficiently work with the editor. But similarly, there are videos where you're sort of combining a shell one-liner and you're sort of composing those pieces together and iteratively building it up. But again, I think it comes from some of that speed that you're talking about. Like you have internalized a lot of the command line and that's just a thing that you have at pretty much immediate recall and actually there's another video that i've I've mentioned a few times but the unix chainsaw which is a particular favorite of Mm -hmm. mine of your talks but in it you sort of talk about some of those ideas specific to unix but i think the idea that you you touched on there of staying in context that feels very true to me and that being a deep value that you can get from knowing your tools deeply and it's an interesting parallel i'd say to like test-driven development as a way to have this very tight feedback loop around the piece of code that you're working on so that you can stay in context and not say have to go entirely reload the browser to see if this small model change that you made actually works or similarly the type system and the feedback that we can get from typescript provides us that sort of immediacy so that being sort of a theme across a bunch of different topics here of how do we stay in context and like you said stay in that working memory that we have built up around the thing that we're working on that definitely resonates strongly with me yeah in the cases of tdd and static type systems or at least testing in general in static type systems, what you're kind of doing there is shaving off some of the stuff you had to remember. So like the YouTube video that you mentioned a couple times, it's showing how I don't have to think about which file to go to next because TypeScript will will just tell me. And so it's like one less thing I have to keep in working memory. So we're simultaneously trying to remove things, not have to think about them by letting the computer think about them. But then the computer can only do so much. And if we sort of learn our tools well enough that we don't need to consult with docs or whatever, it's like two sides, you know, we're like, we're like squeezing working memory from two sides. And I had never really thought about that way until you until you connected it for me. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And, and frankly, thank you, because I feel like I'm just repeating your ideas back to you. But uh, maybe that's all we ever do on the internet. So here we are. I think so. Yeah, it's just one big echo chamber for, for good and ill. <laughs> oh, man, how true. <laughs> and now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Indeed. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world, with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 
73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visit Indeed each month, according to Comscore total visits. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. That's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Bikeshed. That's B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D, all one word. This is their best offer available anywhere. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks again to Indeed for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Well, speaking of the internet and frankly, just software more generally, uh, another of the themes that I take away from generally, I would say your commentary on the world of software is that things are probably more broken than they should be. And this is at least something that we should pay attention to. We can probably do better. But there's always an interesting trade off there. And I think you talk about these ideas in the whole new world talk, which again, that's we'll link to that. Uh, and I won't say anything more. I highly recommend watching it. Great talk. But that's all I'm going to say about that one. But towards the end, you sort of talk about the trade offs between thinking deeply about our tools and also shipping and the need to actually get things out there into the world. And I'm definitely, I think I've been informed again a lot by your thinking, like we should build things that are robust, that are correct, that work, that do not constantly throw errors. But at the same time, we want to move quickly. And so perhaps specifically in the context of Execute Program, which is a business that you're actually running, but perhaps more generally, how do you think about sort of like shipping culture versus, uh, to pick a phrase, hammock-driven development, which is a name of a Rich Hickey talk, but again, something that you mentioned there of like taking your time and really thinking through a solution and then building out that system. Uh, how do you think about that sort of trade-off? Well, the reality is that I have not been doing almost any hammock-driven development in the last year or so since we started charging money for Execute Program. And that's just the realities of, you know, having a young product that where I have to grow it scattered all over the place. But in service of the hammock-driven side, I will mention that the reason the XQ program exists is because I was learning Japanese and I'd used a number of spaced repetition apps. Wanikani is a big one for learning the kanji. And then Anki is an app that's just like not Japanese specific, but just totally general purpose. The idea with spaced repetition being that you learn something and then you get reviews for the sort of item that you learned, whether it's like a vocab word or whatever. You get reviews on exponentially increasing intervals. So execute program today uses one day, four days, 16 days, and 64 days because we're programmers and we like powers of two. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> so I've been exposed to that and I had the thought like we could probably apply this to learning programming stuff. I don't see why not. We have these nice discrete code examples, which could be the reviewed items. And so on a flight to Japan in, I don't even know what year, probably 2017, I built a quick prototype of that, just running in the terminal, just a little, you know, terminal UI within Ruby. Then I didn't touch it again and just sort of like thought about it for like, I think six months until I went back, no, maybe 12 months, I went back to Japan again on the next flight. So one year later, almost to the day, I like looked at that repo. The last commit was like, you know, 365 days ago. And that second trip was where I really figured out how to do it like how to build the app in a way that resembles what we what we have today, which, you know, takes a lot of time to figure out how to design a product where there's not a lot of prior art. And so I'm a huge fan of that. That big break, that one-year break there, I think was basically necessary. It's not like I could have sat down at a table with a piece of paper and done that in four hours. I needed to have a lot of long breaks where I wasn't even thinking about it and then come back to it with with fresh eyes. Same way that you would edit a blog post or whatever, or a book, you know? You don't want to write it and then edit it right away. You're not going to see the stuff that's awkward. You have to go away for a while and then come back as a different person. Culturally, we don't encourage that very much. 
we value the other thing, you know, both generally meaning like, I guess, all of quote unquote Western culture, but programming in particular. And I think that that's bad for us. It decreases the quality of the result, but it also is probably necessary to function in the system that we exist in. Meaning if you take three years to build Dijkstra's own perfect like view library or whatever, React is going to eat your lunch and you don't have time, you know? Companies have the same problem, right? If you take three years to launch your product, it's possible that a competitor is going to come along to do it for you. And so if I'm lamenting the fact that we didn't slow down and design things properly, it doesn't even necessarily mean that I think that we should have taken three years instead of one month to design such and such thing. It's more just like, I'm frustrated that things are the way they are. <laughs> you know, I, I do think that we're too far in one direction. The problem is there are places where getting something out immediately is fine. But there are places where you spend 10 days designing a programming language to go in a web browser, and then 25 years later, it's the most popular programming language on the planet. That's an absurd anecdote. That would never happen. No, obviously not. That's why I used it. Yeah. <laughs> except for that one time. That's JavaScript yeah, in case that, anyone in the audience. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was. I, yeah, let's clarify. Uh, yeah. That was sarcastic. Um, JavaScript was designed in 10 days. You know, an extra five days could have like, think about how fundamentally things could be different if it had been 20 days instead of 10. And it's like, it sounds absurd to say it, but it's really true. And so, you know, I don't know what to do about that. So I think that's actually a really interesting example because broadly, I'm a huge fan of the ideas that you're putting out there that we should be building more robust software. We should, things should work. They should be more consistent. But I think in the example of JavaScript, like they threw something at the wall, it stuck, but then it stuck in a weird way. And, and my understanding of a little bit further in, in the story is that Microsoft enshrined a lot of the bugs of JavaScript as features. They reverse engineered it as JScript. And then suddenly that was locked in. And that was just the nature of the world because now it was implemented in two different places and they had to be consistent if you wanted to work at all. And so mm. we sort of we, the collective we, but I would say Microsoft, we can sort of point fingers at this point, but that locked us in and took away the ability to iterate. And so I'm always intrigued by the trade-off between getting something out there quickly uh, and ideally not sacrificing on quality, but perhaps sacrificing on features or things like that, and then having lots of room for iteration versus the very careful, upfront, deeply thought out idea. And so JavaScript, again, being sort of an interesting case study where we took away our right to iterate and therefore we were stuck with the first version. But uh, And it's obviously gotten much better these days, but it took a while. <laughs> But I, I do want to be respectful of your time. And again, I, I thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to talk about or that you're particularly excited about these days as we wrap up? Most of the things that I'm doing right now are I'm, I'm maintaining, you know, I have this product that's growing. I'm writing new courses. I'm doing things like switching from Stripe checkout to Stripe elements that aren't super exciting to talk about, frankly. But that's what most programming is. And, you know, that came up earlier. Most programming is not generating your create react app and writing your first component you know most programming is you have a giant system of stuff to maintain and you have to balance a million different trade-offs and there are so many of them that it takes a year to spin someone else up on them to even understand them all and that's basically where i'm at right now so my read of that is that's a very positive place to be in like you've developed you've built this platform you're able to then continually grow on top of it focus say on the marketing side and, and bringing new customers in but the thing kind of works and it does the stuff that it needs to do and so getting to that place there's definitely a draw to like, I want my work to be exciting every day, but I don't know, maybe I don't. Uh, or, you know, <laughs> software is really interesting where I think more people do it in their free time than other industries. And so for me, like I have been exploring other weird stuff, but it's not necessarily leaking into my day job and it, it shouldn't necessarily. And finding, finding that right split is always an interesting one and making sure that we're not trying out the newest, hottest thing in the production real app that is making money because we need a place to play. 
Yeah, I've actually always had a hard time finding that balance. I tend to stay in the sort of maintenance mode until I'm like, I have to, like, I, I can't take it anymore. Like, I have to do something weird. And then I'll go off and do something like port the entire back end from Ruby to TypeScript, <laughs> which is like basically how that port happened. I was like, you know what? I've been fighting this nil war for 15 years and no one has gained or, or lost any ground. And so... <laughs> The only way to win this war is not to play, so... I guess I said that whole segment there like I actually just do the quote-unquote correct thing and don't ever bring the fun to work. But for a while, there were a couple of technologies that I was exploring, and I finally convinced myself that they're reasonable enough that now my day-to-day work is actually in a bunch of novel technologies, and I'm sort of re-architecting some of the system that I'm working on. But it was critically important to me that I do that first on a side app and not do the exploration and the like, is this a good idea? Let's find out in production. But then, yeah, I guess I, I did the thing where I was like, you know what, this will be fun. Let's And I do believe it's the right choice for the platform I'm working on and all of the caveats mm. apply. But yeah, it is an interesting trade-off and sort of a weird thing about this world that we work in. It's very difficult to know where that point is, too. You know, even if you do it in fun time, fun time is never 200,000 lines of legacy code, you know. It's different when there are users on the other side of it, it turns out. Yeah, right. And, you know, a database full of credit card transactions and whatnot. And <laughs> Well, Gary, again, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And frankly, for everything that you've done, like I said, for many, many years, I have been following your work and it has really formed a significant foundation of the way that I think about software and probably a significant foundation of what anyone listening to this podcast hears me say every week. So thank you for all of that. It's very humbling to hear you say that. But yeah, I'm glad and, and thank you. And we will include in the show notes uh, links to many, many different things that you have on the internet and folks will be able to keep up with that. But anywhere in particular that you would like us to uh, send folks? Um, I mean, the thing that is most central to me right now is Execute Program. I think it's novel and very different from anything that exists in a number of ways, at least in software development, sort of for learning programming tools kind of space. So check that out. And I guess there will be lots of other things linked. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I mentioned a lot of things today. So there will be an extensive link section in the notes. But um, with that, again, thank you so much, Gary. Cool. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter, and I'm at Chris Toomey, and our missing host, Steph, is at S. Vicari, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.